Scott, I'm curious to hear more about Sir John. You did so much research about his life and you worked with him and he, I imagine, had a big influence on you. What was he like? Do you remember your first conversation with him? Oh, very well. Like it happened last week. He was just this kind of larger than life figure. Would have been in the summer of that year, around 2000. And he would come back to Tennessee. He was from Winchester, Tennessee. And what that's where Lauren is from. And Lauren's parents would host everyone for a dinner on one of the days. And I happened to be in town and join them, which was very nice. Sir John was seated on the back patio of Lauren's parents' house. And you could tell just immediately, he didn't even try, but everyone's in a circle listening to everything he said. And finally, that discussion kind of diffused and he was sitting there by himself, got the nerve to go introduce myself. He said, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm sure he, could, he was the poker player and, and the whole nine yards. He could read. He could see that I was nervous for sure. And I said, oh, tell me about yourself. What do you do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a research analyst. And he just looked at me. He has a big smile on his face and said, oh, I'm an analyst too. <laughs> it was gracious, disarming, and humble. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Dear listener, we reached 10,000 downloads about six months since the launch of the podcast. So big thanks to all of you. There are two other milestones that put a smile on my face. First, most of you listen to the entire episodes. And in a world where many spend billions to get a second of anyone's attention, my guests get a full hour of your attention every week. So again, a big thank you to all of you on my guest's behalf and on my own. Second, I enjoy hearing how so many of my guests might have given hundreds of interviews before, yet they tell me that this one was their best or one of the best. I'm also flattered to know how some guests have given one or two podcasts interviews in their life and one of them was with me. Thank you for that as well. One small request uh, to you, dear listener. Think of one person today who would enjoy this podcast, pick one episode that they would like, and do me a favor and share it with them now before listening. You'll help me double the audience by next Monday. And if you can think of at least one woman in your life, your spouse, your mom, grandma, sister, best friend, and share it with them too. Thank you. As you may guess, US, UK, Canada, Australia, Switzerland are among the countries where most of the listeners come from. But I would also like to hear from Puerto Rico, Morocco, Botswana, Bolivia, Fiji. You're all on the list. Most listeners are from California, New York, Texas, and Florida. But if you're from Louisiana, Arkansas, New Mexico, Hawaii, Alaska, I want to hear from you too. And I see you on the list as well. Thank you all for all the kind emails and DMs that you sent me in the last few weeks. I'll call out and share some in the coming weeks. Last but not least, please go ahead and check out my new book, Crisis Investing, where I share essays from the last three years of pandemic investing and everything I've learned during that time. The book held a number one, two, three position in a number of categories in Amazon's new releases. So thank you again. All right, that's it. Let's get going with the show. My guest today is Scott Phillips. He's a principal and chief investment officer at Templeton and Phillips Capital Management. He also serves as managing member of the Templeton and Phillips Partners Fund. Prior to Templeton and Phillips, Scott operated Cumberland Capital, a firm providing equity research to global and emerging market hedge funds. Before Cumberland, he worked as a research analyst at a hedge fund management company, Green K Asset Management, 
and prior to that, he was a research associate at SunTrust Robinson Humphrey. Scott's other professional activities include serving on the Investment Advisory Subcommittee and the Finance Committee for the John Templeton Foundation, as well as the Audit Committee and Chair of the Board of Trustees for the Templeton Foundation. Scott is the author or co-author of three investment books, including Investing the Templeton Way, Buying at the Point of Maximum Pessimism, and a co-author of the revised edition of The Templeton Touch. Scott received his BA from Swanee University of the South. Today we talk about Scott's childhood and upbringing and how that time influenced his relationship with money and led him to a career in investing. Scott shared his experience of spending time with Sir John Templeton and his first conversation with him. We discussed the concept of maximum pessimism and how it helps in investing, which aligns with Seacard Associates' contrarian approach. Scott emphasized the importance of thrift, frugality, and saving in the value investing mindset, as mentioned in his book, Investing the Templeton Way. We explored Sir John's exit strategy and how he timed his sales to avoid market overheating and bubbles bursting. Scott shared his thoughts on the ideal environment for cultivating the right investor traits. We discussed Sir John's perspective on success, focusing on how his client's ability to send their children to school or plan for retirement was a measure of his own success, and Scott shared his similar viewpoint. Scott discussed working with his spouse, Lauren, and how they collaborate and invest together, acknowledging that successful duos in the investment profession, especially spouses, are relatively rare. We delve into Sir John's use of history in his investing pursuits and how it helped him be more prepared and less surprised when history repeated itself. The sense of adventure and global travel in Sir John's life was highlighted from his travels in Europe before World War II to his global investments. We explored the evolution of an investor's approach, drawing parallels between Sir John Templeton and Warren Buffett, and Scott shared his own continuous evolution as an investor. Scott reflected on the influence of Sir John in his and Lauren's careers and how they emulate his philosophy while also incorporating their unique approach. We concluded by discussing Scott's personal definition of success and how he defines his own achievements. Please help me welcome Scott Phillips. Hello, Scott. Nice to see you. Great to be here, Rogamil. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I'm a a big fan of, of your writing, of your book, and we got to meet briefly at ValueX, Guy Spears ValueX in Switzerland. And I wanted to have this opportunity for you and I to sit down and chat a little bit more and get to know your story and hear more about your ideas, your writing, and what you've learned about Sir John and how you and Lauren are managing money these days. But before we get into the story of your firm and the philosophy and the study of the life of Sir John, I'm curious to hear more about Scott. And I'm curious to hear about the beginning, if you don't mind, if you indulge me. I want to hear about your childhood and upbringing and how you think that time influenced your relationship with money and led you to a career in investing. If we take it from the beginning, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina in 1974. So my childhood spanned the 80s and early 90s. And uh, my father sold group health insurance. He had his own agency. And my mother was a high school French teacher, but then became a stay-at-home mom and, and looked after my younger brother and I. And uh, they influenced me in so many different ways. I learned a lot from them. And my father just had this kind of unshakable positivity. And he definitely instilled this idea that I've carried throughout my life that the way he put it was, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. And so when you hear that over and over and over as a childhood, it does kind of inculcate the self-belief, this positive thinking, this positive mindset. He was one of 10 children. My grandfather, his father was in the U.S. military. And so he grew up just, he had to fight for everything he ever had. But he always had this, like I said, this kind of positive energy. So he started a paper route. He was eight years old and uh, everything he ever had, he basically had to go out and earn and buy. And so he took that work ethic, I think, gave it to me in a far more like structured, nurturing environment. So I worked too, but it was for an allowance. I, so when I was 10 or 11, I started mowing our lawn. 
and he would pay me an allowance. That was the money that I used to, to buy certain things. I don't know how familiar you are with Columbia, South Carolina, but there are a couple of things you should know. It's full of really friendly, warm people, but it, it is just painfully hot in the summertime. And we're talking about temperatures well over 100, 110, 113, heat index, 115, 124, I think is the record. Those experiences, just earning money and, and having that kind of making those early linkages between working for something and earning something, I think were invaluable and it built character in a number of ways. And then my mother's influence was, was very different. She had, she came from means, so to speak. So she had advantages my dad didn't have. And so she, she is interesting to think back on this. She was fluent in French. She played the piano. She had all these kind of different interests and things that I was exposed to, of course. And that kind of opened my mind in, in certain ways. But in any event, the thing I heard most from my parents outside of the encouragement and the emphasis on education was go outside and take your brother with you. My entire childhood was filled with just the standard issue for a kid at that time in the 1980s. There were no devices. There was no internet. There was a television, of course, but I think it had like 25 cable channels. So no one sat around in the house and watched TV during the day. You were outside doing things. Standard issue was a BMX bike and a baseball glove. And my childhood was just kind of full of adventure in that way. And the big thing that I really caught on to early was Little League Baseball. I learned so much from that because I remember starting at eight years old and I was probably the worst player in the by far. Look at that. I think that they played me the, the mandatory, like one or two inning that you were open for paying to join the baseball. But it was something that I loved and had a passion over. So every day, every single day for probably four or five years, I would go home and I would take a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the side of our brick wall house, which I don't think my parents enjoyed this much, but I would go out there and measure off the distance of pitcher's mound at that time. And I would practice pitching and throwing every single day, hours on end, types of styles, techniques. But I got so proficient that within a year or two, I was an all-star and I was always the best player on the team. And so those kind of early experiences of working for something and achieving something have always been kind of percolating in the background of my investment career. Those are very early formational type of foundations. Just another thing, we were just always outside. Fishing was a big thing in the South. So I had a fishing rod and access to lakes and would spend a lot of time that doing that. And uh, one of the things you learn fishing is you learn how to think because you're trying to outsmart these fish <laughs> and you learn the discipline of patience. Yes. You learn certain behaviors like you want to go where other people aren't fishing because there won't be any fish there. Uh -huh. And you learn how to experiment with different things, different techniques, different lures, different baits. You learn that the best time to fish is probably five in the morning when the sun's coming up. And so it, if you have this kind of competitive mindset and want to pursue these things. And I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't competitive and didn't want to be the best player on the baseball team or catch the 10 pound fish. You just pursue it. And so my child was just kind of full of these constant competitive learning experiences, which I think translates really well into a career in investments because it's so competitive. It requires a lot of thinking, a lot of behavioral conditioning. And uh, there were there were other things along the way that kind of tied back in the little league. I collected baseball cords. I, that parlayed into understanding that a Babe Ruth card would be worth X. Of course, a Hank Aaron card worth Y over time. And then collected comic books, things like that, looking for first editions. My mom, my mother loved to go to antique markets. So I would always go straight back to this kind of big stack of comic books and I'd leaf through them. And look for the first edition. Mm -hmm. I have my allowance money. And I buy that thinking that who knows, 30 years, it may be worth a thousand dollars or whatever I, I thought at the time. So there's kind of patience, work ethic, some sense of the time value of money 
were just all kind of already there and in place. I wish I could tell you that I had a big influence early in my life to get into investing like Lauren Templeton, my wife did, but uh, that came much later. Actually, it did come from her father. Lauren and I were, were uh, dating in college and we kind of, I went to visit them and meet them and he pulled me aside for the talk and he said, what do you want to do with yourself? Natural question from um, your girlfriend's father. I said, I've given it a lot of thought. And uh, I'm pretty certain I'm going to go to law school and see if there's something I want to do in law, practice law. And uh, he said, well, that sounds pretty good. But what I really think you should do is go work in investment, go work in a bank, go learn how all of this works, because I think you'd enjoy it. And if you don't like it, then you can always go back to law school. Mm-hmm. But he said, you cannot opt out of the money game. You have to understand how it works. And he was 100% correct. It's the best advice I've ever received regarding a career. And uh, so that's what I did after college. I went, thankfully got hired at an investment bank in Atlanta to work very low on the totem pole in the equity research department of Robinson Humphrey, entry level for sure. But yeah, that was kind of my journey into the industry and some of the things that I think, you know, looking back, can see where I'm tapping into those same behaviors today. I see a lot of little building blocks and a lot of little experiences that came together. I don't know too many kids that would want to buy something and wait 30 years to make money on it. So you immediately had a very (laughs) long-term view. Yeah, I don't know where patience is so critical in investing. It is. I wish I knew where it came from. I, I worry that you either have that or you don't. And there have been lots of experiments around that psychological experience, you know, the marshmallow test and so on. But it's so critical. And I think that the earlier you can kind of grasp it and learn it, it's, it's so important. And it all came together. It's interesting with the overlap between the legal profession and the investment profession. Munger himself was a lawyer for a big right. part of his life. I think there's a certain logic to the investment world. And as you said, maybe you just get it or, or you don't. And then right. it's interesting to look back at those early years and see how we were molded, we were shaped in a certain way, but a variety of experiences that helped us down the road. So the investment education doesn't start with the first conversation that you had with your future father-in-law, but I think it started when you were shopping for the, for those baseball cards and all the other things and, and collecting and looking at price and value and an opportunity. Yeah, so, it, it wasn't an exact medium, wasn't the same market. Mm-hmm. But it's the behavior. And I, I really think, and not to fast forward too much, there are three sources of excess return as an investor. Mm-hmm. There's, you can have better information. Yep. You can have better modeling, engineering, financial engineering, like a quant fund, mm-hmm. or you can have better behavior. And behavior right. to me is the most durable of the three sources. And for us, it's the bedrock of everything we do. Mm-hmm. So there is a certain amount of kind of wiring, whether how, we could argue how much is nature versus nurture, but it has to be, have to have this behavioral backdrops, experience, foundation. Speaking of those three sources, so information, back in the day, a hundred years ago, if you were Ben Graham, you could go and search and find records and look up something that nobody was looking at. Nowadays, everything is released and it's public and it's online. It's a level playing field. Everybody can look it up, whether you're managing $500 or $500 million or billions, right? So so everybody gets the same filings. Now, the analytical part that you mentioned, do you have the skill to actually read it, understand it, and draw conclusions? So two people can look at the same filings and walk away with completely opposite. That's true. (laughs) you You need to have developed those skills, and that comes from practice. Kind of goes back to what I was saying about getting outside every day, drawing a chalk circle on the wall and hitting the target every single day and tinkering and figuring out what works. That kind of repetition is essential. Like you have to stay fluent in your analytical skills. You have to keep up with the new tools. You have to innovate. You have to look for new tools. Mm-hmm. But I also think the big challenge today, going back to what you said about information, and, and really like at the beginning of my career, Internet was there, but it wasn't what it is today. Mm-hmm. So you could go to sec.gov or Edgar Filings 
and, and you find violence. But we were still receiving 10Ks and 10Qs in the mail. This is at the beginning of my career. Now today, everything you could imagine. Mm. And it's not only the analytical skill, it's the judgment and discipline to only focus on what matters. Because there's so true. many distractions. There's so many people in your ear telling you, listen, and they're most immediately, most of them are opinion. And so mm-hmm. you can kind of put those off to the side immediately. It does take a lot of mental discipline to invest because there's so many distractions. I think so. So have you thought about that? So you, you did your research, you did your anal- analysis, you're watching your behavior, you made a decision to buy it. And that say you want to buy a major U.S. company that trades a lot and you go in and buy the 10,000 shares. But that means that on the other side of that trade, there's somebody that looked at the same data, has the same information, yeah. hopefully watches their behavior and decided to sell, right? Isn't it fascinating? Two participants, equally informed, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's so critical whether you're buying or selling to go through mm-hmm. the process of the other side of the trade. What are they thinking? Why are they doing this? If you have that perspective, well, certainly, and you're, you're willing to pursue it in a disciplined manner and really think through what they're thinking and what you're thinking. I think that's a huge boost to your decision making process. Just remember that somebody disagreed with you just now because they sold it to you. Yeah. Why did they do it? (laughs) And so a lot of what we do as investors, we kind of spend a great amount of effort siphoning our circumstances into trades where the odds are more are. Yes. So we're not necessarily out buying and selling on any given day, but if the market falls 20% in a short amount of time, like in March 2020, you can be sure we're in the market. We're testing ideas that we've had, looking at the valuation, but we're, we always have to consider the other side too. Why is this person selling? We hope that they're selling because they freaked out or they're getting a margin call or they're pessimistic or, or whatever, mm-hmm. they're throwing in the towel. That's what we hope, but you still have to do the homework and make sure that they're not, they don't have the, the edge over you in this trade. I, I call it the, the last arbitrage and I'm thinking of the time horizon. We go in and we're willing to buy, you were talking about the 30-year investment or 30-year purchase as a, a youngster. As an investor, if you go in with a, at least a three, five-year investment horizon or longer, you realize that there are fewer people in that room with you. Absolutely. They're, they're thinking that way. That's another important insight. As an investor, it's a broad ecosystem in the marketplace. And you kind of have to know where you fit into that ecosystem. Hopefully you're not a, a trader or a short-term kind of oriented investor, because I think that's the most difficult place to succeed. But if you're a long-term investor, you know that you have a lot of, con- you have the ultimate control over the price and valuation of your investment. And so if you're willing to wait for a discount or to whatever reason, mm-hmm. you also know that time, you have two big advantages. You've gotten, you've gotten your investment at a low price, chip control over, but there's also a wide spectrum of outcome. And a, a lot of people think in, I think in just kind of binary terms. If you kind of lined up all the factors to your advantage, like there's underlying value in the balance sheet, there's management quality, there's a dividend that's been growing over time and hopefully will in the future, you realize that even something that didn't go as well as you hope could still very well generate a decent mm-hmm. return. And very so, much. And that's the benefit of time. You know, if yeah. you're just going to cut yourself off at the knees because you didn't make money in the first months, well, I don't know what what to do. In fact, if I had that mind mindset, I don't think I would even bother if I was no. just determining everything on short term on a short term basis. But that might be the seller selling the shares to you. Hopefully, that's been sell. kind of the timeless facet <laughs> of human behavior. We're all trying to take advantage of impatience, pessimism. However, you want to frame it, that's what we're hoping to be on the other side of the trade. I think there is a saying that the money eventually travels from the impatient to the patient, something along those lines. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in investing. No, it is true. Scott, I'm curious to hear more about Sir John. You did so much research about his life and you worked with him and he, I imagine, had a big influence on you. 
What was he like? Do you remember your first conversation with him? Oh, very well. Like it happened last week. I uh, let's see. This would have been two thousand around two thousand. I started in the industry in November of nineteen ninety eight, and at that point, I had already run across Graham's writings. It was I was kind of all of those things were starting to resonate with me. So I was acutely aware of who he was. I knew about Warren Buffett. And uh, he was just this kind of larger than life figure. And so I actually got the chance to meet him. Would have been in the summer of that year, around 2000. And he would come back to Tennessee. He was from Winchester, Tennessee. And what that's where Lauren is from. A lot of family members would return there in the summer. And they would all kind of have a family reunion. And he was also establishing his foundation. So the family was involved in that too. They would kind of have these informal family reunions. And Lauren's parents would host everyone for a dinner on one of the days. And I happened to be in town. I had been invited to come and join them, which was very nice. And uh, Sir John was seated on the back patio of Lauren's parents' house. And you could tell just immediately, you just, he yeah, was just, he didn't even try, but everyone's in a circle listening to everything he said. And uh, finally, that discussion kind of diffused, and he was sitting there by himself, got the nerve to go introduce myself. He said, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm sure it could, he was the poker player and, and the whole nine yards. He could read. He could see that I was nervous, for sure. And I said, oh, tell me about yourself. What do you do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a research analyst. He just looked at me, he has a big smile on his face and said, oh, I'm an analyst too. It was <laughs> gracious, and disarming, and humble. Because here was this guy, this is, if you're a basketball player, you're meeting Michael Jordan or something like that. They could have said anything they wanted to in that moment, but instead he was friendly and disarming and uh, helped put me at ease. And the first question out of my mouth, this is such a strange time in the market. This is during the dot-com bubble. And as we know now, he was famously shorting that at uh-huh. the time. But I had the great kind of luck or circumstance to have really latched on to what was going on in China at the time I was studying their economic development. It was just so fascinating to see the early stages of that. And so my first question was, what do you think about China? And he had already been investing there. And he knew everything there was to know for the reasons why and and so he kind of, he took that moment to kind of say, okay, I'm going to show you what you wanted to see. And he just, the, the volume and the speed at which he unloaded and information and knowledge and background and the depth, breadth of it, everything you could imagine about China just came out effortless. And so I knew right away what I already did. He was just an absolute brilliant master at this game. Everything was right there at the tip of the stone. It was whether he wanted to share it with you or not, honestly. And he was nice enough to do that. And then thankfully, he asked me about the stocks that I was researching and covering and recommending. And uh, thankfully, again, they were so far away from the dot-com mania. These were consumer durable names that produced or retailed furniture. Floor covering Shaw, which uh, Buffett later bought, was one of the names covered. And these stocks were trading at six, seven, eight times earnings. And so he became very deeply interested in what I had to say, thankfully, <laughs> total circumstance. And he said, please send me your, your research. I'd like to read it. And so I did. And we just kind of, over the years, maintained contact through that. And I was occasionally sending him research or seeing him again at one of Warren's family events that we were able to thank Cliff. I just, uh, yeah, I feel so lucky, but it developed some type of relationship because at that time, it was such a young analyst, didn't know anything. It was just, uh, it was really special looking back on that and developing that relationship. It was very special. Sounds like he was a very generous person that always kept learning and he knew he can learn from everybody. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You're so right in that. That is the key. He was... The, he was, he had the insight and discipline, mental discipline to know that he already knew a lot of stuff. He was looking for more information. Mm-hmm. And 
he actually in a room in a meeting, he didn't talk very much. He was listening. He was learning. And if you said something that piqued his interest, then he took an interest. And that's just kind of how it worked, I think. I think it's a gift because uh, a lot of people like to talk and to be able to hear somebody. It's true. You have to create that moment of listening in silence. Remarkable. Yeah. A stock analyst for life. You write about maximum pessimism, and it's a big part of uh, Sir John's and you and Lauren's uh, way of thinking. And we consider ourselves contrarians. We like to go where others don't want to go, whether it's timing or whether it's circumstances of a particular investment. We're looking for an edge. Can you talk about how that influences your investing, the maximum pessimism approach, and what it means to, if you can explain to the audience that's less familiar Absolutely. with the idea? Yeah. It, it, The, the idea of buying at the point of maximum pessimism or being contrarian, to some, to some extent, it's kind of a chicken or the egg relationship, you know, where it comes from. But for us, it came directly from Sir John and had a very rational quantitative basis for looking at a stock. No story. We're, we're not looking for tips. It's always numbers driven. And for him, it was always numbers driven. It was bottom up. So he would go through long. He was one of these people that he would get the big stack of value line updates and leaf <laughs> through every single page. He would read about every single stock. And then he would write down the values based on P, price above, give it a yield, price cash flow, whatever, that looked like outliers. Yeah. And that's what led him in the stocks. And when he saw large collections of outliers in one group, a country, or an industry, he would investigate that. As a, it's a broader investment. Everything was always numbers. He said, we let the numbers tell us where it does. And so this idea of buying at the point of maximum pessimism is taking that to an almost hyperbolic level. So you're saying, where are the best bargains? Where are the best value? And you're going to find those when the market is most pessimistic. And so once you kind of establish that base, as a rule for success and you experience that success as an investor, it, it really becomes a driving force in everything you do. The moment during like March of 2020 had us just completely giddy because <laughs> everything <laughs> on sale once, everything. Right. The market fell so fast that really you had the ultimate latitude to make investment because nearly everything was bargain price. Mm-hmm. And so once you have some experience kind of being rational and numbers driven, you start to say, well, when's the next opportunity? Mm -hmm. And that's a far different mind than I think what most investors look at is what's the next hot. It's completely opposite. But you get there through this kind of quantitative reason, this rational approach. And yeah, you can call it contrarian because ultimately it is. But I think that's really the sound basis for it. There's this idea that most of the money is made in bear markets. And you really have to think about it because people get attracted to investing during a bull market. Yeah. Because really, when you, it goes back to those kind of three sources of alpha. If you believe that your edge is behavioral, that you don't really have an edge in getting better information, engineering, well, we all implement elements, of course. But if you believe that your true edge as an investor's behavioral, then you want to cling to the most rational methods possible. Mm -hmm. But March of 2020, I remember, I think we the market index has lost three years of gains in three weeks or so. A yeah. really remarkable time. And I was very excited because for the first time in a long while, the stocks were coming to me. I wasn't chasing them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember walking into our client's office to meet with them. And the first words out of They were kind of like shell-shocked. They're very experienced investors and very calm and rational. But uh, it was just, it was a lot to take in in a short amount of time. I, mm -hmm. I do think that was probably one of the most rapid declines we've seen since May, the 87 crack. I, I don't know if it's broken up. But we, we just walked in and said, it feels like Christmas morning. Because mm -hmm. it did. It, That's it, what you've been waiting for for so long. For us, it was an in interesting experience because clients would still call and we would, would call clients and they would say, especially the ones that have been with us through the other ups and downs, they would say, I know exactly what you're doing. You're probably looking up stocks and buying. So I'll let you get back to it. I just wanted to hear your voice. And I thought that's so nice to hear that the clients know exactly what we yes. would be doing in a time like that's this. That's perfect alignment. You have great clients. 
And that's so key in this business. You, you do need alignment with, I think, philosophy or some trust that your manager is, is doing. So, And if I learned anything in those three years, two, three years, is that be ready to be surprised because I think nobody saw it coming. I was actually at a conference in Florida two, three weeks before the lockdowns and this was a consumer staples, consumer companies conference with CEOs, CFOs, the top executives, and everybody was telling us that this is an issue in Asia and, and they are about to reopen their operations in China anyway. It's behind us. Let's focus on this year, this quarter, that quarter. And I thought that in terms of information, I might not know everything, but if I'm sitting with CEOs of companies that have operations in 100 plus countries and have people on the ground, and from what they were telling us, they were still surprised by what, by what was about to happen, oh. then it, it's really humbling. <laughs> it is. And, but there's such an important lesson that you kind of tease out of this, you know, which is you didn't have to predict no. that it was going to be that bad to make money, but you did yeah. have to behave correctly when it came. Exactly. And so you don't have to be this master predictor of events or see things from around the corner, so to speak. It helps if you can, but that's not necessary. But what is necessary is to go and buy bargains. That's very true. I want to ask you about saving, thrift, frugality. And you and I briefly talked about it when we talked about your childhood experience, your perception of price and value. I don't know of any value investors who are big spenders. And Sir John was not one either. And no. I, I don't think you are. No. Tell me more about this relationship between saving and investing. Somehow they, they click for some people. And if you appreciate the importance of one, it can help you with the investing side. Yeah. It, again, it, it, I'll give you a, a straight answer on it, but it, it's a tough question because we don't always know where that came from. We can be around people who are savers. Of course, you can learn it from your parents. You can be thrifty. You can learn, you can learn those behaviors. The, the ability to have delayed gratification is, is it's, to me, that's a little bit unknown. Who has it? Who doesn't? Why they haven't? But from Sir John's perspective, I believe it was my mother-in-law asked him, said, why, do you, why do you save 50% of, of everything you make? You have so much. And he said, to be ready for the next opportunity. I like that. So for him, it was very purposeful. It's mm -hmm. very deliberate. He knew exactly what he was going to do with the money. He just didn't know when, because you can't really predict that. He could to some degree, but most of us cannot. But yeah, so it was very practical. It was common sense. I also think that he was shaped by big kind of 20th century events, the Great Depression. He saw what happened. He saw what could happen if you weren't a saver. And he took those lessons to heart. So it was very just, it was both practical, common sense, and very deliberate on his part. And I think that, I, I'm not sure what makes some per a bargain hunter versus some person who buys a Ferrari or, or, or whatever. I'm not sure where that comes from, but it, it certainly exists. And yes, you're absolutely right. In the value investing space, you see it in spades. Almost everyone in that kind of branch of investing or investment philosophy has a very grounded, down-to-earth, practical relationship with money. And uh, it's prevalent. I'm curious about the how different events can influence an investor. And you, you joined the profession during the dot-com bubble. You just mentioned the Great Depression and Sir John, how it influenced him. But I know stories of investors, including Ben Graham, if you had such a painful experience in your investment career, you're always looking over your shoulder if it will happen again. And in, to some extent, I think it can, it can help because you are more risk-averse. But from what I know, Ben Graham, towards the end of his life, he basically exited the markets. He was so ready to see the Great Depression repeat again, and it never did. Right. These are the, the anecdotes that I heard. But I heard about other investors. So if you see so many bad things happen in your life, eventually you kind of miss out on the opportunities. Sure. But Sir John saw so much that was the war and the Great Depression and all the other big sell-offs, but he kept on looking for opportunities. It didn't stop him. He did. I think that one of the things he always shared with Lauren and myself, and I think it captures the answer and we'll elaborate on it in just a moment. He said, I'm so envious of all the things you'll see in your life. Mm. And that is a real deep and thoughtful statement because what it reveals is that, yeah, he was shaped by oppression and World War 
were a series of wars, a big burst of inflation, economic crises. Throughout that period, there is also enormous human progress. Almost unthinkable of mm -hmm. all the things he saw in his lifetime. Modern air travel, computers, internet, television, radio was still kind of a small thing when he was born. Mm -hmm. All electricity. And so he had a deep understanding as both a human and an investor that humans are making rapid progress. Right. And the standard of living is increased. Mm -hmm. And that someone of, and perhaps a, a lower income bracket today still less better than the Rockefellers back mm -hmm. at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he, he understood not only that that was a, a basic reality, but that it was beginning to take hold in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of his genius as an investor. So he saw that when you unleash the individual, when they have the freedom to go and make, create, and start a business and earn money and have their own property rights, have some ability to protect everything they earn, you're really unleashing human productivity. Mm -hmm. And I think that he saw that as something that can and would persist. Now, it ebbs and flows, obviously, based on politics and in certain countries it can go away altogether. And but he was a deep, deep advocate of the, basically the teachings of Adam Smith and all the economists who came out of this kind mm -hmm. of laissez-faire, free market thinking approach. Mm -hmm. He saw the benefits of believed in it very dearly. So he kept on finding opportunities, as you mentioned, not just in individual stocks or groups of stocks, but also countries, which you just touched on. Right. I'm, I'm curious about the exit strategy because he clearly did not overstay his welcome in some of the... Yeah. <laughs> it's where things got overheated. He, he was gone already. How did he know when to leave? I think that part of what made him such a great investor was that he was constantly searching. He was mm -hmm. constantly searching for the next outstanding return. And so he didn't, he was never complacent. Mm -hmm. Now he was disciplined enough to, to stay in an idea as long as it was the best one available. But when he found better ones available, he would switch. And so he had a framework like this. It was a 50%. When he found an idea that was 50% better based on intrinsic value, he would switch and switch. He went into Japan in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So he was there a really long time before right. it kind of took off during the 70s. And then in the 1980s, it just exploded. But he was long gone because what was happening in the U.S. at that time was like today, basically. It had rampant inflation, a troubled economy, much more so today. People kind of given up on equities altogether. And mm -hmm. so he had calculated that based on replacement value, that stocks in the U.S. were the cheapest it ever been in his lifetime. So he was gladly selling into the euphoria that Japan was becoming to buy cheap stocks in the U.S. because he knew that was the next big opportunity. And again, I think it, it highlights two things, a rational quantitative basis for investing, but the mental discipline to act on it. Because it is so easy when you're watching your stocks go higher to just sit there and watch them go higher. It feels great. And so you have to be extremely disciplined to pull money from the, those winning investments and put it somewhere where things look horrible. But he had that ability and he just did it over and over. So it's the new and better idea that pushes out the previous one, it sounds like. Yeah, mm -hmm. new and better, but again, he's contrarian. So he thinks it's new and better when everyone else say, what are you talking about? Yeah. The one thing about it, and it happens to us quite a bit, that the new stocks that we buy, they usually underperform for a while still. So it gives Absolutely. us a chance, right, to buy more and more. But True. in that moment, it looks like we're going in the wrong direction. Why not yeah. continue to ride the rising tide? It feels good because emotions come into play. So you have to have a, a very strong mental, rational framework for making mm -hmm. this decision. Yeah, I think that's probably his big, biggest gift was he was just a very rational decision. Mm -hmm. I think that it was something he cultivated over time and just got better and better and better at it. So I'm thinking about the, the, the clients behind the accounts or behind the, the portfolios. And we manage family fortunes and we, we know the people behind the portfolios. We work for one generation and the following and the following. 
And Sir John and I think you and Lauren think about the clients behind and how the work that you do can benefit them in terms of sending kids to school or comfortable retirement, all the other options that money can provide. Can you talk about that thinking? I think it's increasingly unusual in the investment profession where everything is a product, everybody's a number, to actually care about the people behind the capital. I totally agree. Yes. So I think that for Lauren and myself, our first kind of experience with that was we were, we were in Greenville, South Carolina, checking into a hotel to attend a Clemson football game of all things with a prospective client. And it was funny when we were checking into the hotel. This is a, a good way spent. This is probably 2003 sometime. But the man at the desk looked at Lauren's ID and said, your name's Telvin. She said, yeah. And he said, you're not related to John said, yeah, actually, he's my great uncle. And he's, he just looked at her with just this kind of moment-stopping gratitude. And mm-hmm. said, the next time you see him, you tell him that I said, thank Because mm-hmm. I invested in the Templeton Growth Fund, whatever year it was. And he sent my kids to college. And now I'm sending my grandkids to college because of what he did. And it just humanized everything in that instant. And it really just, you know... What it resonates with is this idea, this philosophy that Sir John carried and we carry ourselves, which is you need a purpose in life. So what is your purpose? And when you discover that, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's going to be organized around your talents. And so when you harness all of those talents towards a purpose, which is, I think, providing something, just it brings a sense of fulfillment that is all-encompassing, and it reinforces itself over time when you realize you're having that impact on people. Mm-hmm. It's about creating value for others. And uh, just that realization, I think, is the most fulfilling part of our work. I've created something that's helped, and that's how the marketplace should function. And that's, I think, how traditionally over time, that's what's worked best in capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's cultivating an idea, harnessing your talents to improve the lives of others. And if you have that focus, the money will come. So it's really just a matter of, Sir John had a funny way of putting it. He said, you're a servant to the marketplace, mm-hmm. which is a very, very humble way of expressing what I just said, because it is a servant's mentality. And you serve your clients and your customers. Mm-hmm. And you do so to the best of your ability. And uh, the reward is improving their lives. And all the other things will come into place if you're good. I like that a lot, being of service to people and then providing value and seeing or hearing in this case how it made a difference in people's lives. That's a very powerful way to think about it and a great motivation in in this pursuit that's not always easy. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that the real benefit of that approach is the joy will accrue to you. It's... A funny way of looking at it, I think most people go out and they say, well, I want to work, earn money, provide for myself and my family, and it stops there. But there's so much fulfillment in realizing that you harnessed your talents and your life towards helping someone else. And that is a much stronger propellant than just going out and trying to earn money. Mm-hmm. Very much. I'm curious to ask you about what it's like to work with your wife, with Lauren. My wife has uh, experience in... Uh, branding and design and she helps me with some visuals and my website and covers for my books so she has a a big influence on that aspect of what i do so there are not too many duos in the investment profession and i honestly don't know of too many spouses working together in the investment profession Mm -hmm. so what's it like and you know how how has it been it's great it's funny i don't even think about it and i I get asked this question and then i become like self-conscious yeah you're right you don't see that as much, spouses working together. For us, there are a few things that I think work well. We have total alignment. Mm-hmm. All of our interests are aligned. We are in the same business together, providing for our family, providing for our clients, very much a team. And if you're running a business, especially an investment business, you absolutely have to trust the people you're involved with, mm-hmm. period. It's the foundation of everything in, in this industry. Trust 
and money, all those things work together. And so who do you trust more than your spouse? Hopefully it is your spouse. But then I think from a practical standpoint, we have very complementary skills to the extent that she is so talented in areas where I'm not. And I have talents that she could have, but she's not as interested. So I spend most of my time in, in research and thinking about investment. And she just has so many just natural skills that lend themselves to interfacing with people, to meetings, to leading in the boardroom that she's in. And we learn from each other, honestly. She, she makes me a better person every day. She gives me honest feedback, which is not always the best to receive, but <laughs> I learn from it and I accept it. She is such a, just a, an honest, quick on her feet individual thinker. I'm completely different. I'm honest, but I'm a much more methodical plugger. So you had to compare us, the mechanics of the way we think. She's a sports car and I'm a diesel engine. Uh-huh. So I have the endurance to sit there and go through all of the filings and the numbers and the screens, all that stuff that you have to do as an analyst. I enjoy. So I'm kind of wired for that. And she has all the capabilities of doing that. But she's such a superstar in other facets of business. And I tell you, you don't want to get in an argument because she'll win. She's so sharp. Uh-huh. And so quick on her feet. So she really thrives in boardrooms and in presentation mm-hmm. and areas of leadership around our business that it's almost like try to make a winning team, but we play different positions on the mm-hmm. field. So if I'm on the pitcher's mound, she's a catcher. She can get on the pitcher's mound and pitch and I can catch, but that's kind of where we sit. And mm-hmm. we are interchangeable to some degree because we learn from each other, but yeah. The division of labor, the ultimate level of trust in your partner. And we're friends and we get to share all these cool experiences like going to Value X and meeting you and everyone else in Gloucesters. That's such a neat and fulfilling mm-hmm. experience to have with your spouse. Most people go off and do this by themselves and the spouse has no idea what they do. You know? But we kind of live it all and experience it all together. And all humans have conflict. We have disagreements, but. We always know where the rubber hits the red and where our interests are and our goals are, and they're unified, totally mm-hmm. aligned. So that's how it works. I, I like the sound of it. it. It looks like you have a very beautiful harmony, and it works, and you're both enjoying and sharing the experience and finding ideas and traveling. So it's, it's really fun to see. It's, it's very inspiring. And I was going to ask you, you had this big influence of, of Sir John in your life. But then you continued to develop with Lauren your own Templeton way. Right. <laughs> and I'm curious how it's different or how it's the same as what Sir John would be doing these days in these markets. As you said, he was excited for, for the two of you, what the world will bring. And it was even more innovation, more companies. Even in the last few years, we had so many new IPOs, so many more companies to look at. Yeah. I'm curious how your new style continues to evolve and how it differs from the original, if it does. Yeah, so I think that the best answer to that question is there are just there are certain principles, right? So let's just say the principle is I want to buy a stock for less than it's worth, less mm-hmm. than the business worth. My calculation of value, right? He was, and this came directly from him, constantly looking for new ways and new perspectives to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And when Lauren was working with him, and later when I was working with him. That was, that was part of the process to constantly mm-hmm. look for new ways to do that. Develop new screens, new tools for valuation. Mm-hmm. And so at the heart of that is this just complete buy-in on innovate, coming up with new ways to look at it. Because he said over and over, and we've all seen this to be true, everything that works in the investment industry will eventually be discovered and copied. And then it won't work anymore because everyone will be doing it. And right. he knew that so well. And so when you trace kind of the arc of his career and all those wonderful investments he made, all employed different methodologies within value investing, and the value investing principle, but there were different analytical tools at work. So mm-hmm. he was using accounting information to inform his investments in Japan. He understood that 
they weren't consolidating the subsidiaries. Their, their PEs at the time were artificially inflated. Pulled the subsidiaries onto the balance sheet. They were trading at half the multiples. So they're far more cheaper than they were. We mentioned the early 1980s in the U.S. He used replacement value as the calculation basis for his, for intrinsic value. So we've always got this kind of, there's his legacy, which obviously we, we do everything we can to honor and respect and, and maintain, which is a big responsibility because it also means that we need to be competent. We don't want to be reflect poorly on him in any way, shape, or form. Within that legacy is also this notion that you have to keep discovering, you have to keep learning, you have to keep innovating, because when you don't, you're on your way towards being obsolete, for whatever that means. It's not a good thing in any of us. No, but it's it's such a powerful statement because when we think of investment legends, we think that there was just one formula and they right. used it through. 50, 60, 70, 80 years. But yeah, I do think they're, like I said, do you think they're principles that are constant? Exactly. I think they're principles. I think you, you really highlighted the, the essence of it that these are the principles. You're trying to pay less, get more, basically, over and over again and look for opportunities, whichever sector, whichever company size, or whichever market and country it is. And I'm thinking of Ben Graham and, and young Buffett, the kinds of investments that Buffett was making, influenced by Ben Graham, very balance sheet driven, liquidation value, and so on. And and we all know the famous, it gets cited over and over, the influence of Charlie Munger in kind of altering Buffett's perspective and where that took them right. in Berkshire Hathaway. It's profound. You have to keep learning uh-huh. and thinking and trying to grow. Especially if you want to stay in this profession for oh, decades. That's right. Scott, I have one last question for you. I'm curious about your definition of success, and, and I really like that question. I never know where it will go, but is it a destination? Is it a journey? How do you know you're on the right path? I'm curious to hear. Yeah, so measuring success, the one thing that everyone wants to point to because it's the most obvious is making money or so right. on. But I really think one of the things I've, I've learned from Sir John, and both Lauren and I try to incorporate this, is just living with, with purpose, being deliberate, investing in meaningful relationships. When you feel like you're adding value to other people's lives, that to me, that feels, I think that translates into success. Mm-hmm. It does not have to be measured in money in any way, shape, or form. I, I do think that there's this kind of contentment and satisfaction that comes with orienting your life and your talents in a way that create value, create something mm-hmm. that makes other people's lives better. And I translate into any meeting, any person, the greeter at Walmart who said something nice and makes everyone who walks in smile and brightens their day right. is adding value. That's, I think yeah. it pays to think harder on what success is. And, and of course, the, the obvious corollary is happiness, right? And uh, it's not going to come from just making more money. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to develop your, your purpose, live deliberately. Mm-hmm. That will hopefully lead you to your sense of success, gratification. I'm thinking of William Green, who we both met at ValueX and who wrote Richer, Wiser, Happier. And this is a great book. Yeah. Wonderful book, isn't it? And it makes you think how a lot of people get into investing to get richer, take care of the money side. But in the process, they get wiser because they continue to learn. And eventually, they find the fulfillment, the happiness in the process if they are fortunate and lucky. If they're Yeah. And you see it going back to kind of value investors and their, you know, this perception of thriftiness and saving. Most of those value investors who become enormously successful give all their money away. They just Mm -hmm. don't have a use for it after meeting certain basic needs. And I Mm -hmm. think there was this long kind of ongoing longitudinal study that Harvard's conducted the last 75 years. They measure happiness. So they check in on each generation. And one of the things that they've really concluded is that happiness is found in relationships. And mm-hmm. not the accumulation of, of money. That after you meet your basic needs and kind of take care of, of that, that the rest of it doesn't really add much value. It's very true. But people still need it and they need help making it <laughs> in the markets and saving and investing. It's a good place to start and then continue the, the path and grow. Right. Scott, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time today. So thank you again. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me. 
You are listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov. 